Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode, we speak with Tim Shorn, professor in the Department of Political Science, about some of the recent events in Iran. How are you doing today? I am doing very well, dodging the uh, the, the falling rain and freezing snow or something. So. Um, well, first, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at USD? Sure. I am Tim Shorn, and I am an associate professor of political science, and I also direct our international studies program. So I get to uh, teach things that are international. I happen to think it's the most interesting part of political science, and I tell my colleagues that repeatedly. Uh, they may disagree, but they're wrong. So, and uh, and I get to work with students and introduce them to different parts of the world, different ideas, different perspectives, and that's really, uh, I think, it's probably my passion, my professional passion. Then, yeah. So, what would be like a, a class that I could sign up for? I teach uh, Middle Eastern politics, which uh, never gets boring, despite my best wishes. I always hope that we'll have a year where nothing is going on. Uh, I teach a uh, contemporary genocide course where we look at genocides through the course of the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, International law, I'm teaching international human rights right now, which I also really enjoy. And so those are the, the, the courses I look at, law, institutions, and then, of course, Middle East. You know, what inspired an interest in you kind of in the international um, you know, public policy field? And that is an interesting question. I went to law school first and hated law, and uh, but I stayed and finished. But while I was in my third year of law school, I started a master's in government and international studies. And in those early courses during my last year of law school, I think I realized I'm in the wrong field. And originally, I had been interested in Soviet politics. And of course, immediately after I finished my first Soviet politics course, the Soviet Union collapsed. (laughs) And um, (laughs) my advisor taught uh, Middle Eastern politics. And my first class with him, and I thought, aha, this is the new the new region I want to look at. And so I became very interested in that. And I think even going back further, when I was stationed in Germany in the army, I realized how important understanding international relations and organizations and uh, comparative foreign policy, how important all of that was. You know, I know this is probably a a super loaded question. I I feel like I kind of grew up, you know, where my first experience with the Middle East would have been, you know, the Iraq war. Um, and I didn't really understand, obviously, the history that had led up to, to those events and why, um, you know, just the world was the way it was. I, I don't know if you can briefly, for our audience maybe, you know, give us some background information on the Middle East and try to, I, I guess, elucidate for us, you know, wh- why there does there does seem to be such turmoil in that area um, kind of all the time. Right. And. I always start with World War One, and I'm not going. I won't. I won't give you a whole long history lesson and use up, you know, 15 podcasts on this. But that was when the Ottoman Empire fell. The British and French moved in, divided up the Middle East, created a number of artificial countries, and 
even though there was this idea of Arab unity, once you create a country and a power structure develops within that country, it's awfully hard to undo anything. And so what we created were a number of power centers throughout the Middle East, and then with the creation of Israel, uh, the Palestinian conflict, all of that just continued to build and build really since about 1917. And uh, so with, with each new country added, you have a country with its own interests, its own outlooks, its own leadership. And one of the things that we also need to realize is that the Middle East isn't homogeneous. We have different religions, we diff have different peoples, we have different clans, we have different tribes, and just as we see in Europe or anywhere else, uh, sometimes there's agreement, sometimes there's disagreement, and then when you throw in outside agitators or interlopers, you complicate the factor even more. And so today we see uh, kind of a cold war between the Saudis and the Iranians. We see uh, the uh, kind of re-arrival of the Russians. We have the United States trying to hold its interests. You have Israel trying to protect its interests. And so um, I always tell my students, no matter how bad things are, they can always get worse, and they will. So, uh, and that seems to be the Middle East since I've started studying. Well, I think that's a, a great way to kind of introduce us to a topic that we that we wanted to bring you on and discuss, um, which was the recent assassination of Qasem Soleimani. Is that how you pronounce his <laughs> yes. name? Yes. Uh, um, <sighs> What happened? I mean, just to, as a background, you know, what has been going on the last few weeks, last few months, um, specifically in regards to Iran, but maybe with some broader historical context? Right. When we, if we, if we look at the very specific, for example, Soleimani himself, here is a man who was very possibly the second most powerful person in Iran, and his mission, if you will, and his job. Um, was twofold. One, to protect Iranian security, and two, to advance Iranian interests. And so he had a role internally to ensure that the, uh, the Islamic revolution was safe and secure from foreign and, and domestic uh, uh, challengers. And then he also had the role of promoting Iranian interests and helping to protect Shia peoples outside Iran. And so that meant that the Iranians were going to be involved in Lebanon through Hezbollah. It meant the Iranians would be involved in Syria through the Assad government. It meant the Iranians would be involved in Iraq, uh, protecting the majority Shias there who had been so severely oppressed by Saddam Hussein, uh, protecting uh, uh, Shias in Yemen, protecting or encouraging Shias in Bahrain and even Saudi Arabia. And so it was his mission to project Iranian interests and at the same time then protecting the Shia communities. And this goes back to 1979 when the Islamic Republic overthrew our ally, the Shah of Iran, and created an entirely new system and a new revolutionary regime in the Middle East. I think one of our mistakes in the United States, though, is to assume our history with Iran started in 1979. And really, we need to go back to 1952, 1953. And it was in 1953 when we overthrew 
a democratically elected prime minister, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, in Iran, and put a young Shah back in power and gave him absolute power. And that is where the Iranian-American history really started. And so eventually you have the Islamic Revolution overthrowing our ally. Eventually you have Ayatollah Khamenei and General Soleimani projecting Iranian power and interests. And then we have the assassination of Soleimani. And so obviously this history has put U.S. geopolitical interests in opposition to Iran's, um, and this might be the latest manifestation of it, obviously, and you know it's caused already a lot of turmoil. I mean, from you know deaths that occurred at some of the protests in Iran um, to an accidental downing of a, uh, I believe, a airline passenger plane. Uh, there was like about a 179 people, I think, um, you know, that, that that died, and so there's already been pretty significant impacts. Um, Iran responded, obviously, with their own attacks on U.S. Um, uh, uh, facilities abroad. But what are going to be the larger impacts? Clearly, this is not over. Um, we're just kind of experiencing the aftermath of it. Is this part of a larger pattern that's been building up to this? Or is this really a significant change in trajectory, I guess, of U.S. foreign policy? And here's the great political science answer. It depends. Um, it, you know, we're not sure yet. Uh, the United States and Iran have been involved in kind of a Cold War since about 1979-1980. But like in our Cold War with the Soviet Union, you tend to use proxies and you tend not to attack each other directly because then all of a sudden it ceases being a Cold War. You find yourself in direct conflict and in a hot war. And that changed with the assassination of Soleimani. Uh, because we had decided, uh, the, the Trump administration had decided that um, we're going to trace the proxies and the various conflicts that are going on in the region right back to the source. And the source is not just the Iranian government, but more specifically, the source is Soleimani. And so I think the idea was if we can eliminate Soleimani, we're going to eliminate the ability or the interest of Iran to consider or to continue interjecting itself in these other regional conflicts. I think that that is probably an incorrect uh, conclusion uh, because Iranian interests weren't created by Soleimani. Iranian interests created Soleimani. Uh, Soleimani was the tool. Now that means that if those interests remain unchanged, somebody is going to have to take his place, which we know has already occurred in the Revolutionary Guard Corps, and somebody is going to have to continue moving forward in promoting and protecting Iranian interests. Uh, the question is then, do we and the Iranians return to script? Do we go back to the war by proxy, or do we run the risk, as so many uh, European leaders and other world leaders are concerned about, do we run the risk of escalating this further? And so that's where the, the big it depends comes. Uh, both countries have their interests, both countries have their concerns, and one of our interests is not to let this get away from us, but uh, do we have the ability to step in front of this ball and keep it from escalating further? And we'll have to watch. You know, 
I probably should have asked this this question at the beginning. Is Iran technically in the Middle East? Is it considered the Near East? What what is Iran? And that and that's an interesting question too. It all goes back to kind of uh, British geography and cartography. Uh, we started calling it the Middle East, and really most of what we consider to be the Middle East is Southwest Asia. Saudi Arabia, Israel, part of Turkey, all of those other countries that we consider part of the Middle East are essentially uh, Southwest Asia. Now, that that stops when you cross the Bosphorus and end up in European Turkey. Um, it stops when you cross uh, into the Sinai Peninsula and into Egypt, where now all of a sudden we're in Africa. But the Middle East is, for the most part, Southwest Asia. And... It's it's a region that is not continental, if you will. It's very much geographic. But I would certainly consider Iran to be in the heart and part of the core of the Middle East. Once you get further east of Iran, then very much the periphery of the Middle East. Well, and the reason I asked the question, I guess, was talking about the specific culture of Iran and how it has – it's an old culture. It's, it's rich and vibrant, and it's, I think, from my understanding, maybe more modern than – many Americans would expect of it? I mean, is that a fair characterization of it, of Iran? I think it is. Um, and we look at a couple of developments over time. During, um, in 1925, uh, the older Shah, the, sh the father of the Shah that we knew and loved, overthrew a very corrupt and uh, selfish uh, dynasty, the Qajar dynasty. So in 1925, the Shah, the elder Shah took over. Now, one of, one of the things that he and his son did was to create a very modern state, uh, a bureaucracy that reached throughout Iran, uh, which, you know, was good in that now you had uh, the benefits of government reaching throughout Iran. Uh, the, the bad part of that was then that the Shahs were able to control everything throughout Iran. And in the same time, they, they focused on education, um, they focused on the rights of women, they focused on infrastructure, they, they focused on secularization, all of, uh, not all of which, but much of which got them in trouble with the religious leadership then. And they also just created a very oppressive regime. But yes, Iran has a long culture and history, the Persian culture and, and history. Uh, it is a very modern, uh, uh, developed state. Um, I would argue that their industry would be much more modern if uh, relations with the United States had maybe softened and developed a bit after 1979, after an, an initial period of, of anger and suspicion. Um, but sanctions have taken a toll. So Iran is a very, uh, a very developed uh, modern state with a very uh, sophisticated people and educated people who you know, are, are nobody's dummies. They know what's going on. And so th to some extent, I have a feeling, and we see this through some of the protests, they're caught in, they're feeling a bit caught in the middle between a government that they don't necessarily like and support but an outsider trying to uh, interfere as well what impact does this have and i know you mentioned this a little bit um earlier just with our allies um it, you know when the trump administration entered office we had the iranian nuclear accords that for i think 
practical purposes were, were working fairly well. I think most reports would say that they were being followed. The monitors, um, you know, were at least allowed to report on, on the activity that was occurring. And now we have removed ourselves. We've withdrawn from the nuclear accords. Um, we've kind of this situation has escalated, and obviously the the assassination of, of General Soleimani is a pretty significant step. What does this do with our traditional allies in the region that also have their own interests that may be concerned about U.S. foreign policy? And that is, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a very important consideration. Um, our allies were very unhappy when we withdrew from the nuclear agreement because you're right, the nuclear agreement was not only achieving everything that it was supposed to, uh, the Iranians were all, all also ahead of schedule on a number of the, the aspects of the agreement. Uh, I had listened to um, a couple of experts on on nuclear agreements and, and the conclusion was this was the model agreement. And the American concern under President Trump wasn't that the agreement wasn't accomplishing what it was supposed to accomplish. The concern was that it wasn't accomplishing things that were not in the agreement. It wasn't dealing with uh, Iranian support for other, uh, other forces. And so the Europeans were hoping that this continuing or this agreement would continue and it would open the door for further areas of cooperation to include uh, trade, including investment, uh, to bring Iran in from the cold, if you will, and to make it uh, a more responsible player within the region and the world. And the American withdrawal from the agreement upset that. And it left our allies with egg on their face because they had been pressuring Iran a lot to agree to the accords and to abide by them. And now all of a sudden, the United States has withdrawn and it starts to look like no matter what the Europeans do, they're not going to be able to succeed successfully protect these accords, and they're going to be put in the position of either having to support the United States in a policy that they're opposed to, or oppose the United States and suffer in other ways. And I think this is one of the many steps that we have seen over the last two or three years that have, that have caused concern amongst our allies. And this is one of them that has been uh, kind of the most tangible, blatant uh, disagreements between us and our allies. One thing that I thought was interesting, and correct me here if I'm wrong, but even after we withdrew from the nuclear accords, Iran, for the most part, had been following them up until this most latest incident. Is that correct? That is correct. Iran had started, we could say, pushing the envelope a little bit after the United States withdrew, but they really hadn't done anything that was not uh, reversible uh, and quickly reversible. Now, with uh, the the killing of Soleimani, the Iranians have to say, look, um, we can't cooperate with you in one area and then see ourselves attacked in other areas. Consequently, uh, the agreement is finished. We're going to start moving forward. We had not had a plan to create a nuclear weapon, they said. We still don't have an intention to create a nuclear weapon, but we also do not have an intention to be, uh, have the intention to be bound by an agreement that 
allows you to attack us in other ways. You know, and, and I just pulled this up before we started recording the podcast, but you know, the, or the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, um, you know, move their symbolic doomsday clock um, to basically now it's set at 100 seconds to midnight, which is the closest it's ever been. And part of the their press release they put out about it was related to climate change, but then also, you know, nuclear instability, which I have to assume relates to the situation with Iran. Right. Um, obviously, there's been significant impacts. What what I guess was the justification for this move? I mean, other administrations, and I know this was talked about in the press, we had known where General Soleimani was, you know, previously we had known his location. And so it had, you know, been possible for other administrations maybe to carry out a strike like this. Um, so why now? Why, why uh, did, I guess, the Trump administration decide that this was a necessary step? And that's a question that quite a few in Washington feel that they haven't received a satisfactory answer for, because the initial statement was that uh, there was an imminent attack. Well, now we know there was no imminent attack. And even if there had been an, an imminent uh, attack in the offing, um, going after Soleimani wouldn't necessarily have stopped it. Uh, an interesting perspective I, I did here was that you know, when the president wants to take action, he was given an array of options. And you have on one end always doing nothing, and on the other end something extreme. And with the expectation that the president will remove the extremes and head toward the center. Well, on the opposite end of doing nothing was killing Soleimani. And originally, that particular option had not been taken. But after the uh, attacks on the embassy in Baghdad, all of a sudden, not only was that option back on the table, but that was the chosen option. And so I don't think there was really a good strategic, political, military, legal reason for making the decision at that point, I think it was probably a gut reaction. And the problem with gut reactions is that we don't know what the next step is going to be then. Um, clearly, killing Soleimani should be a tactic in a larger strategy. But we can't be quite sure what the larger strategy is because it hasn't been fully explained. And, you know, clearly every administration since 1979 has wanted to limit Iran's freedom of action within the Middle East. Um, the question is, what's the best way to do that? And would it be through engagement? Is it through sanctions? Is it through a targeted attack like this? Uh, one of the things that we have not tried is real, constructive, sustained engagement. And this makes that option even less likely and more difficult to, to accept. Well, and, you know, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, and you may have just answered this question, but what would you say to... Um, you know, maybe a supporter of this decision who would say, look, Iran has been meddling um, in other countries' affairs, which do involve U.S. interests, whether, you know, you agree with those decisions or not. Um, and 
you know, this this was a guy who killed United States armed, you know, soldiers um, overseas, and you know, led uh, you know operations against Israel, an ally of the United States. He was a bad guy, and you know, he deserved it. And if we don't take actions like this and don't project strength, um, enemies will take advantage of U.S. weakness. What would you say to, I guess, that position? I would argue that, first, it sets a dangerous precedent, that historically countries have agreed there are certain types of attacks that you don't carry out. And uh, so what it does is that it, it essentially could put a target on every American general, ambassador, so forth and so on. And then we end up with a tit-for-tat type of relationship where there's no end in sight and nothing productive coming out of it. Second, I would argue, it puts our allies in a position where they are forced to accept the type of step that they might be morally opposed to, which makes it more difficult for them to support us, not only in that, but in other, you know, other areas down the road where we need their support, that it was a feel-good moment, perhaps, but does not address long-term the issues we have with Iran. Yeah, to, I guess, kind of sum up our conversation, I, I want to ask you one more question, and this might be out, you're out of your periphery, and so, but it's hard for me to view this outside the context of certain domestic situations in the United States, um, specifically impeachment. Right. And I I saw this story online, and it was one of those where you, you literally, it was like, I had to go fact check it, because right. I was so just, you know, you ha it was just one of those things where you're like, well, this could yeah. easily be a lie, too. But it's tweets that the president had tweeted out, one from November 29th, 2011, another one from October 22nd, 2012, another from September 16th, 2013, basically wondering out loud if President then Barack Obama would start a war with Iran um, basically to get reelected. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to wonder about when you see, I guess, kind of the bewilderment from strategic experts that don't necessarily understand uh, why this was carried out in, in this manner? I mean, is that, I guess, a fair thing to be concerned about? Well, it's it's a question that often comes up. I remember it coming up during the Clinton administration, during the Lewinsky um <laughs> issue where oh, really we carried out an attack wow. against Sudan or a chemical plant in Sudan. So we see these issues coming up and you know one of the ways and it's and it's not limited to the United States. Uh, you know some would argue that perhaps Iran also uses a a wag the dog approach in taking attention away from the domestic discontent and certainly what you know the killing of Soleimani did if nothing else was change the news story for a day or two and so I think it's always beneficial and legitimate to ask what propelled our president to make this particular decision and it could be that a president 
can come up with a very legitimate, uh, rational explanation for what they've done. But it's very possible then it, the responsibility is on them to demonstrate that it was a legitimate, rational decision. And so I think, you know, I think it's certainly reasonable for people to ask the question, and the implication may very well be correct, and it's going to be incumbent upon the president to show that, no, even though I might be in domestic political trouble, this was for the good of the country and not for the good of me. And the, the last question I guess I wanted to um, ask you specifically about Iran is just where do you think we go from here? I mean, uh, some of this might depend, obviously, on the next U.S. president, um, but but some of this is, is more entrenched. Some of this, uh, you know, lack of cooperation between the United States and Iran has obviously existed between, you know, presidents of different parties in the United States. It's existed for a long time. So where do you see it kind of going from here, if you can project five, even 10 years, maybe into the future? I think to get out of this rut, what we're going to need is is kind of a, a, a Nixon going to Beijing, a Reagan going to Reykjavik, a, an Assad going to Jerusalem. I can go on and on. Uh, but I think it's going to need an American president to change the script to change the direction. And there's nothing to say that if the president or a president took that step that it would necessarily be successful. But I would argue this is a step that we have not attempted since 1979. Nothing else has worked. So maybe we ought to do uh, what everyone is afraid to do, and that is engage with no preconditions just to see what happens. Um, Churchill one time apparently made the remark about Americans, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they have tried everything else. And and I think the right thing at this point would probably be to let this settle a bit, let the dust settle, and then it would be great if an American president, and it wouldn't have to be the president, him or herself. Uh, it could be a secretary of state or, or, or some other um, agent of the United States to make a move and to engage. Um, I don't foresee that happening anytime soon. So my fear is that we end up with simply a continuation of this type of Cold War. It's been going on for 40 years. It could go on for another 40. I don't think it benefits anyone. Uh, so um, I guess we'll come back in 40 years and revisit uh, what, what has occurred. Um, but the only way that things will change is if an American president decides it's time to change. Um, the last question we like to ask most of our podcast guests, and I know this is a hard switch from everything oh, that we've right. been that's talking right. about, um, but it's a little bit more philosophical in nature. And we had talked a little bit about, you know, your your background and some of the life experiences that you've had. And I think you've probably lived a pretty interesting life. And you've certainly got to, to travel, you know, all over the world and meet different people, see different cultures. At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? That is a great question. And in fact, I was telling my students this either today or, or on Tuesday, that one of the things I have learned the longer I teach, the longer I read, the longer I study, is how much I don't know. And you know, part of me looks ahead to retirement, 
but the other part of me thinks, I can't retire. I keep learning too much that I need to torture my students with. I need to be able to share something that I've just read or something that I have finally put together after teaching for 28 years. And so I think what I do know is that I have to keep learning so that I can keep sharing with my students. And I look back and realize how wrong I've been on a number of things. We won't go into that, but... Uh, but be episode uh, number two. Yes, yes, episode. yes. Uh, but I, I think that's really what, what I know now, what I've learned. Tim, thank you so much for the conversation today. I learned so much. I hope our audience did as well. And thank you for everything you do here at USD. Well, thank you for having me. I, I enjoy having these types of conversations because they, they make me think. And I, that's never a bad thing. For sure. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 